This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. I am so excited to have Dr. Stephanie Estima. She's an expert in female metabolism and body composition. She has a passion for intermittent fasting as well as functional neurology brain metabolism, and the specific application of the keto diet and fasting to female physiology. You're exactly where you need to be. She also likes to focus in on distilling strategies and nutritional proxies, movement, posture, and mindset to actualize human potential, health span, longevity, and achievement. Welcome, Stephanie. It's so nice to have you here. Oh, it's such a thrill to be on your podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, you know, let's dive right in. I think on so many levels, a lot of the content as of late has been about women of a special age. I always say, you know, perimenopause and beyond, but we really have had a lot of interest in bringing on, you know, female health specialists that can talk about, you know, our more fertile years when we're a little bit younger, you know, what's going on with our bodies. I got a lot of questions about, for example, about the menstrual cycle. And I know this is an area where you really shine. So Let's dive right in and let's talk about what's going on with our bodies each month when we're having a cycle. Sure. So this is, and I'll actually just preframe this by saying that I once gave, I went to a high level female entrepreneurial group and I like the topic, I think the topic was like having, you know, being successful, you know, with eating and training. And I just put in like a little graph of the menstrual cycle. And we literally had a two hour Q&A after the talk. So what that really showed me was that even women like seven and eight figure women, you know, doing really, really well in their business, haven't really revisited what it is, like the ebbs and flows of their hormonal milieu over the course mm-hmm. of the month. And we all, you know, maybe got it for like, you know, a couple of uncomfortable days in high school, you know, we learned about the menstrual cycle and then we moved on. But I think that as an adult female, irrespective of your age, I think it's really important for us to be able to harness the power that comes from understanding where we are in the cycle and how we can adapt for self-care, for nutrition, for exercise, for all the things. So I'll give you like a little crash course in menstruation, right? Like 101, there's typically four weeks. The average, you know, cycle is around 28, 29, 30 days, although we do have a bit of a spread there. So 26 to 32, 33 days is still considered normal. For the ease of just explaining it, I usually just break it up into four weeks. So if yours is four and a half weeks or it's three and a half weeks, you're just going to modify you know, the, your phases, like each week is going to be either shorter or longer, just depending on the, on your cycle length. So week one is your bleed week. So this is when you are shedding the endometrial lining in terms of the hormonal landscape, pretty much everyone, all the hormones that are involved in menstruation, they've all taken a vacation except for FSH, follicular stimulating hormone. She's like holding down the fort, you know, trying to develop the next follicle for the next cycle estrogen's low, progesterone's on vacation somewhere on a beach, testosterone's low. So we have all of these things relatively low. This is a, in term, and I'll kind of pull in a little bit of nutrition and, and training as we kind of go through it. But the first couple of days, a lot of women tend to feel a little sluggish, maybe a little achy, a little crampy. 
this is the time where you are allowed to be slow. <laughs> and I start off with this because there's so many women, myself included, who spent years trying to fight against my own biology. I was like, it doesn't matter. It's I got my period. I got to build muscle. I got to do the diet. I got to do the thing, whatever it is. And you push yourself, you know, beyond your, sometimes your physical and your, the limits of your, like the finite capacity of your matter. So give yourself a couple of days nice walks, you know, maybe some yoga, maybe some Pilates, you know, and then once you sort of feel, you get into the rhythm of your bleed week or the rhythm of your period, then you can kind of get back to your, you know, regular exercise regimen, whatever that may be. This is a really great time when we, I know you're a really big uh, fan of fasting and I mirror that. This is a really great time for more, I'll call them more aggressive fast. Like in the first two weeks of our cycle, so the follicular phase, this is the time of the follicle. This is a great time for more, I use the word aggressive, but it's just more restrictive fasting. So maybe more water fasting. And then in, in the luteal phase, which we'll get to, then I tend to change the type of fasts and the type of nutrition that we have. So week one, bleed week, great for a fast, great for a ketogenic diet as well. If you've never tried keto, again, your body is much more resilient to macronutrient restriction in this first week. Second week, so you've stopped your bleed. This is now two main things are happening. We are leading up to ovulation, which is actually the main point. Like, I mean, whenever we're tracking our cycles, like day one is the bleed, right? Like that's when we start. But actually the most important part of your cycle is that you ovulate. So we are in the second week, we are leading up to this ovulation, this like the main event, right? So what happens hormonally is we're going to have two main things happen. One is we're going to see estrogen have her, like it's the biggest and quickest rise of estrogen in our cycle. So we will go from something like, you know, there's a big range from woman to woman, but somewhere around five picograms per milliliter, all the way up to like 300, you know, so there's a big rising, very steep change in estrogen concentration. And this is because we are trying to mature the follicle. Estrogen is a trophic hormone. It is a growth hormone. So it's trying to develop and drive growth in the follicle. The other thing that we get in week two is a rise in testosterone. And so this is really important. This is actually why we feel really sexy. We feel really flirty. Maybe we're like, you know, chasing our husband or partner around the dining room table as I do in week two, right? Because we have this testosterone and testosterone is really important for many things like lean muscle mass. It's important for body composition. So this week in terms of fasting, just to kind of pull, like to continue the story of fasting, I tend to move away from more aggressive like water fasts here. And maybe because I'm really concerned around either maintaining my own muscle mass or the, my clients or drive or building more, the type of fast I tend to like to recommend here for both myself and, and the women that I work with is more of a time-restricted eating type of fast. And you know, I'm sure that this has been covered on your podcast before, but time-restricted eating is basically you're still eating every day. You're just concerned about the eating window in which you are doing it. So for me, a very easy, you know, everyday fast or a TRE is going to be a 16-8 where I have eight hours where I, I eat and 16 hours where I don't. And in terms of macronutrient composition, so we talked about keto being really great in that first week, very resilient, really good to restrict your carbohydrates in week one, maybe even restrict your proteins. In week two, I actually like to protein, like there's a bit of a protein cycling. So I actually like to jack up proteins in week two. And part of that is to profit from that increase in testosterone. This is the only time in our menstrual cycle where we see testosterone rise as high as it does. So when we think about what grows muscle, we can do it two ways. One is through the diet, 
eating protein. And the other way is mechanical stimulation. Hopefully you're doing some sort of resistance training. So I like to increase your protein concentration this week so that your testosterone actually has a lot of work. Like we make testosterone busy. So she has a lot of stuff to do. She's building up your muscles this week. Main event happens, ovulation at the end of week two. So this is, we see a rise in something called luteinizing hormone. Luteinizing hormone helps release the egg. It's like the beautiful, you know, the Chanel bag, like releases the little pearl or the oyster releases the little pearl, right? And then we move into the luteal phase. And this is where we see this kind of dramatic change in our hormonal landscape. So in weeks one and two, you might make the argument that we are more extroverted, we are more chatty, you know, we have estrogen driving up our facial, you know, plumping up our lips and our cheeks and our, you know, and our vertebral, you know, our articulation centers in the brain. In week three, post ovulation, this is where I like to, what we see in terms of hormones, we see estrogen kind of, you know, right before ovulation takes a, a nosedive. And then she starts to slowly rise up again, again, because what we're doing is the follicle that released the egg is now turned into something called the corpus luteum, in which that's actually what the phase is named after. This is the luteal phase after the corpus luteum. So corpus luteum now is secreting, is going to be secreting progesterone. We're going to, your body, whether or not you want to have a baby, is going to try to build up the endometrial lining in anticipation of a fertilized egg. So word of caution, you know, if you are trying to get pregnant, this is the time, you know, like right before ovulation and, and immediately right after, this is the time where you want to be having lots and lots of sex. If you don't want a baby, this is the time where you, you know, can play with some other things, right? You can have some other fun things that you and your partner can play around with. So in terms of hormones, we start to see like a secondary rise in estrogen again. It's not as high as the first apex that we see in week two, but it's going to be more of a constant. And then towards the end of that third week, now we're starting to see progesterone. This is the main hormone of the luteal phase. She's going to be starting to rise up at the end of sort of mid week three. And then she reaches her peak kind of at the end of week three, beginning of week four, like day 21, 22 ish. So again, in terms of nutrition, I actually like to return to a ketogenic diet. I like to, depending on the woman's hormonal status and kind of depending on our conversation, we, you know, where we can go, we can like kind of piece apart things, but I will either recommend again, water fasting, typically if she's androgen dominant, like we get back or like PCOS type of clinical presentation and maybe a water fast is appropriate that we can also do caloric liquid fasting. So lots of bone broth where you're fasting. It's not technically a fast, like you're still consuming calories, but we're having it in liquid form. Mm -hmm. And then week four, just to sort of tie it all up in a bow, this is like do or die. Like you are either pregnant or you're not. And all of your resources are going to go towards building up your endometrial lining. So this is where we will see if we were actually to take, you know, some blood work, we would look at the serum or we look at the plasma. We're going to see an increased utilization in glucose, which is the breakdown of carbohydrate. We're going to see increased utilization of amino acids, free fatty acids, all of these things. So I actually like in week four, and some people kind of freak out when I say this, but I actually like you to increase your calories in, in week four. And it's because your body needs it. It's not because you're breaking the diet. It's not because you're, you know, you have no willpower and there's something wrong with you. It's like physiologically, your body is building up a new organ. It is building up the endometrial lining. You need more calories to support that. So I will tend to, again, I up everything. So all, you know, fats, proteins in terms of caloric intake goes up 10 to 15% is usually the recommendation that I give. So it's not the whole Haagen-Dazs store. It's just, you know, it's just a little bit, just a little bit, you know, it's extra protein bar or something like that. 
And then I will also change the ratios again. So it's not ketogenic anymore. It is going to be more like a 40, 40, 20. So like 40 fats, 40 proteins, and then the fill is going to be carbohydrates. And then hopefully at the end of week four, you know, like, so progesterone drops if there's no fertilized egg. And then like the corpus luteum starts to degenerate, no more progesterone, the endometrial lining becomes ischemic, and then you start to shed it. And then that's week one again, that's the bleed week. So that's kind of your period and your menstrual cycle in a bit of a nutshell with some nutrition there thrown in. No, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on was I think you've got a really wonderfully unique kind of take, kind of incorporating all of those things together. I don't see a lot of people taking the nutrition piece and taking in the workout piece and really like digging into the physiology of what's going on with our bodies. Now, I had a couple of questions about the menstrual cycle in particular. So you touched on some of this already. So for individuals that might be, you mentioned androgen dominance. So someone yeah. that's polycystic ovarian syndrome, we had a great podcast with Nadia talking about this specifically, and not everyone with PCOS is necessarily significantly obese. You can still be thin and have PCOS. Correct. And so for the individuals that are struggling a bit more and they have weight issues, how would you guide them differently through their menstrual cycle? I know you mentioned, you know, talking about some of the bone broth and things like that, but recognizing that they're already a little bit insulin resistant or maybe yeah. quite a bit. How do you navigate uh, making recommendations to them throughout their cycle? Yeah, this is a great question. And thank you for asking that. So you're correct in, you know, obesity and PCOS are not always sisters, right? Like they don't always happen in tandem with each other. So it's more often than not that we see obesity happening alongside, but you can have a normal BMI and still have a problem aromatizing or still have a problem with conversion of your testosterone to your estrogens. And as you correctly said, a lot of the physiology here, it does have to do with insulin resistance. So I know Dr. Jason Fung has talked about insulin resistance as it relates to PCOS. I think he's written a couple of articles on them as well. And I'm sure there's, as you said, many other experts that you've had on the show. So my approach here is going to be in terms of nutrition, the ketogenic diet, you know, we talk about this. I mean, it's funny because we often hear it's like, oh, it's a fad. And now it's like, well, I mean, if you're eating bacon, butter and burgers on repeat, yeah, like that's not sustainable over the long term. We need to be developing a green or like having lots of plants. So a ketogenic diet for a woman with PCOS, I would be kind of plugging the first, my approach to care for her would be to go all keto for at least a month. So to have a plant-based ketogenic diet. And what that means is that you are consuming lots of green leafy vegetables. So the kales, the Swiss chard, the bok choy, the arugula, the, you know, the spinach all. So that's going to make the base of your plate. Your protein is going to be about 20% of your total calories. I usually will give people a visual, like just like kind of the size of your palm is about you know, an appropriate portion size for you. And then the fat is the fill. And we get keto wrong, I think a lot because we think, oh my God, so she's talking about like 70% fat. And it's like, yes, but the caloric density of fat is more than double that of protein and carbohydrates. So you have nine kilocalories per gram for a fat versus four for protein and, and carbohydrates. So you actually need a little bit of fat to go a long way, right? You actually need half of the amount of fat in terms of quantity in order to kind of meet the caloric expectations there. So for a woman with PCOS, it would be like a 70, 20, 10. That's what I really like. So we get 70% of her calories are coming from fat, 20 from protein, 10 
you know, from carbohydrates, but all the carbohydrates, actually all of the carbohydrates are those green leafy vegetables. So she's getting a lot of the fiber. She's getting the sulforaphanes, which are going to help drive not only uh, phase two conjugation, which is a step in detoxification in the liver, but it's also going to help with her aromatizing. It's going to help with the conversion of testosterones to estrogens. So lots and lots of green leafy vegetables. And it's actually super easy to eat that way. It's like you saute a little bit of Swiss chard, maybe a little bit of garlic and olive oil, your, you know, piece of chicken or whatever. And then you have, you know, the olive oil is your fat source. So I'd have her doing that for at least a month to sort of get the insulin under control, because we know the insulin, the pairing to insulin to the macronutrient is the carbohydrates. We want to be able to restrict carbohydrates as much as we can to bring down her insulin level so we can begin to resensitize her cells to that. In terms of fasting, I mentioned it briefly when we were sort of talking about the menstrual cycle in its totality, but I would say that water fasting is going to be something that is a more aggressive type of fast. But again, fasting is like you're restricting everything, right? You're restricting all macronutrients, including the carbohydrates and including the proteins. So this is also a really great way to help with her insulin sensitivity. You can't just jump into a three-day water fast. So if you're listening to this and you're like, wow, that's really great. I'm just not going to eat from now until, you know, three days from now, I would say, please be slow. The number one rule of fasting is listening to your body. You can't just jump into a, and I'll say this from experience because I used to, like, I listened to the Jason Fungs and the Peter Atias and the Dom D'Agostinos. And I was like, oh my gosh, these are my heroes. Like I'm totally going to do exactly what they're doing. And of course, completely messed up my own menstrual cycle because I forgot that I was a woman, you know, like We're I don't, many men. yeah, we are not many men. We're not small men, even though I know that many women, including myself, like to pretend that we are. So you have to very slowly kind of, you know, aggregate your fat or improve your fasting tolerance over time. And I can, you know, there's, I've written articles on that. I'd be happy to share that with your readers or your listeners if they're interested in learning more, but water fasting is kind of one of my favorite things to do. And then of course, the other piece of it in terms of insulin sensitivity, and we haven't talked about this quite in quite as much detail yet, is really the idea of resistance training. So when we think about the muscle mass that we have, the more muscle mass that you have, the better glucose disposal agent you are. And what I mean by that is when you do eat carbohydrates, your muscles, the more muscle you have, that is functional active tissue. So the more functional active tissue Issue. They want to gobble up the carbohydrates and you'll be able to dump the glucose basically in the liver and in the muscles more efficiently. And the really nice thing about the muscles is that once the glucose gets in there, they can't get out. <laughs> like they're missing that phosphate group, right? So once we get the glucose in or the glycogen, which would be glucose dumping into the muscle, like it stays there. So I always say it's like, it's like Vegas, like what stays in, like what goes in Vegas, <laughs> it stays there, right? So for a woman with PCOS, like it's kind of a three-pronged approach in terms of like nutrition would be a ketogenic diet at least for 28, you know, at least one month, but sometimes we'll cycle it. Sometimes fat adaptation will take a little longer. So anywhere from like six to 12 weeks is sort of what I've seen. So one, two or three cycles of just pure keto. And then I would start integrating the fasting that we talked about, the water fasting, at least the daily fasting to start. And then there'd be a resistance training component to it as well with the long-term goal of increasing her lean muscle mass so that she can better regulate her insulin. So this is a really important distinction that you're making. I think many women have been conditioned to believe that we want to do chronic cardio. Oh, yes. Irrespective of what age we are. Yeah. And what I have come to find is that 
the way to, and this is a natural function of aging as women and men get closer to 40. So middle age, there's something called sarcopenia. And so that's, Correct. you know, this muscle loss of age. We don't want that to happen because there are lots of unfortunate things that come from that. Like I think about my little cardiology patients years and years ago that, you know, I was looking at them. I'm like, gosh, they have so much muscle wasting. They're skinny, but they're just, I mean, their muscles are just so thin and kind of sinewy, not in a good way. It's the marbling that you see like with a nice steak, right? It's like like the fatty infiltration in the muscle. Yeah. 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 And so you definitely don't want this. So if you're listening to this episode in particular, we've heard before from other female physicians, we want to make sure we are doing weight training. We want to ensure we are building muscle throughout our lifetime. And it becomes even more critical as we are getting older. But I think it's such an important, I always say, I never miss leg day. Like I do two leg work a week. That's my girl. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I was like, so leg day is the most important day you can get into the gym. Mm. And I recognize there may be people listening that are under COVID restrictions and social distancing restrictions, and maybe you can't get to your gym, but you can do body weight exercises. There's so many things you can do. You hold your laundry detergent and do a hundred squats. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you want those big muscle groups. So I love that you kind of touched on that. And and one thing that I want to kind of pivot on is there are probably women listening that are taking hormonal birth control. Mm. And I want to be very upfront. I mean, I was that thin PCOS person, which I didn't know. I had a very irregular cycle in my you know late teens, early twenties. And my doc, of course, put me on the pill and I had the worst PMS in the world, which of course I was so worried. I didn't want to not have a regular cycle in my mind. I was still having a cycle, which I wasn't. And then I, I got married and we went off the pill and it was this deep dive realization. Like not only do I not have bad PMS, it was from the synthetic hormones. But I think about, you know, women feeling kind of trapped, trapped in the sense that they want reliable birth control, but feeling like, you know, they just don't understand that they're really not having a period it's breakthrough bleeding. So let's kind of touch on the people that are on oral contraceptives and there's no judgment. Cause like I said, I was on the pill for forever, hundred percent oral contraceptives or an IUD. Let's talk about how that influences the communication so that the entire endocrine system, our entire hormonal system is governed by our brain. So we've got this hypothalamus pituitary axis and all these hormones, all this beautiful orchestration. And I never had enough appreciation for the endocrine system until I hit middle age. But let's talk about why that's so important and what happens when we take these synthetic hormones, just so that people understand the distinction. Like you've beautifully, eloquently stated what goes on with the menstrual cycle under normal circumstances. But when we're taking synthetic hormones, talk about this disconnect between our brain and our bodies. Sure. So when we're on oral contraception, I think that And we've done quite a few on my own podcast. We've done quite a few like shows on this. We've had guests on and we've also done a lot of AMAs. And I think that what happens is when, a and this is why I love what you're doing with the podcast, because you are empowering women to make better decisions. Because what happens is a woman will have acne or she'll have irregular periods, as you're saying, or, you know, something, you know, she goes into her allopathic physician's office, her medical doctor, and the doctor says, okay, I'm just going to, you know, here's a birth control pill to fix that. So before we even kind of get into the pill, I just want to pull back a little bit in terms of the philosophy that's happening there. So when you go to the medical doctor, they want to fix the symptom. They want to fix the symptom of the acne. They want to fix the symptom of the irregular cycle. So they are going to give you an artificial, they're going to give you a medication that is going to kind of fix that. And we were just talking about this in the pre-chat, right? Like we are conditioned, right? We go into the doctor, we're like, I have this problem. I want to walk out with a bottle that's going to fix this in three to five days, right? So we also levy that expectation 
expectation onto our physicians. So this is, I'm not poo-pooing on medical doctors. I have many colleagues who are, but this is, you have to understand that they are trained in this allopathic model where it's like, there's a problem and there's a drug that is going to cover up the problem to air quotes. If you're listening to this, not seeing it, fix it, right? So when we take an oral contraceptive, what that is effectively doing, it is making your body think that you are pregnant. You are taking progestin, you are not taking progesterone. So progesterone, which we talked about before in the luteal phase, this is the natural hormone. You're getting a synthetic and you are also getting estrogen. And that is making your body think that you are pregnant. So what happens is your brain no longer, there's negative feedback. And you were saying like, I never appreciated the endocrine system. It is so beautifully complex. Like it would be complete hubris and arrogance for anyone to say, yeah, like I totally get it. Like I totally get the hormones and the endocrine system. There are checks and balances that are in the endocrine system to make sure that we don't overload or we don't go or like too far in any, you know, direction on any different continuum. So when you're taking the oral, you know, when you're taking the birth control pill or any sort of hormonal contraception, you are essentially shutting down the connection between your brain and your reproductive organs, which is your ovaries. So there are, like you said, you're not actually bleeding. You, it is a medical bleed. So you don't actually have the feedback. You don't actually have have the feedback in terms of where you are in your cycle, what is happening. And the other issue is it's, you know, which is kind of the more important one is you're not actually fixing usually the problem why you originally sought out care. So if it's acne or if it's irregular periods, you know, just sort of artificially making sure that you have this artificial bleed every 28 days is not actually fixing the problem. So we want to have the courage as women to give ourselves a little bit more grace and a little bit more time to figure out what's going on. I know the pill's easy. I know it's like, yep, I'm like in a month, like everything's going to be like, you know, a-okay. But giving ourselves as women, especially the type A women who are listening, because you are my people. I am you. I get it. Like we want the fix, right? We want it right now. But giving yourself a little bit more of a runway, giving yourself a bit more grace and ease and less pressure to say, okay, I have the acne. I have this irregular, what could be going on? Is there something in my diet? Is there something in my sleep? Is there something contaminant in my environment? Is there things that I can try to work on naturally first and give myself the time to actually step into that before taking the pill? Now, if you are on the pill and maybe it's for a contraception, I mean, that's fine. Again, like I said, no judgment, love you anyway. But as long as you understand the risks, right? Like as long as you fully understand and have informed consent in terms of what the risks are, because you are, there's a lot of fertility challenges that we see with women who are on long-term birth control pill. Most studies on the birth control pill have not been done long-term. They've only been done for a couple months. Like it's okay, but we keep women on the pill for like 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And then they get off the pill. They're like, okay, I want a baby, right? But then their brain, their reproductive system has essentially not been active for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, however long it is. So you have to give yourself a little bit of time there in order to reestablish that connection. I don't know if I'm answering your question. I may, I know I've gone off on a couple of tangents there. But yeah. I think that's, it's really helpful because I don't see enough women talking about this. And I think yeah. because I'm done having babies, I've got two teenagers and, you know, it's hard for me to wrap my head around the fact eventually they will leave the nest and, mm -hmm. and my life will go on with my husband. But I think it's really important that women understand there, you have options beyond yes. just... I had a symptom. I mean, my best friend from high school, the best example is she's been on the pill, honest to God, forever. And we were having a conversation and she said, I don't even know if I stopped taking the pill, if I would get a period. 
And I said, well, how long have you been on the pill? And we had this conversation. It's been such a long time. She Mm. just assumed that when she got her period, it was a period. And I said, no, no, that's breakthrough bleeding. And I think there are still a lot of healthcare providers and being a nurse practitioner, you know, there's no judgment. I recognize the way that my training was working. It was designed to address symptom management. And, you know, it wasn't so much focused on root cause management, which I later learned. But the point of why I'm sharing this is I I want people to understand that that prescription is not always the answer to every single problem we're experiencing. It could be a lifestyle choice. It could be that you need to, you know, as you mentioned very eloquently, you may need to change your diet. And I think there's not enough of us talking about that, the nutrition piece. And I always say it always starts with food. But let's pivot a little bit and talk about, you know, one of the other big problems that I see happening with people. A lot of women want to make intermittent fasting work for them Mm -hmm. for a variety of different reasons. Mm -hmm. Generally, women that gravitate towards me, it's because they want to lose weight. Yes. And I remind people, you know, intermittent fasting is a great strategy for most people, not everyone. And sometimes it's a temporary thing. It may be that you're in a position where you're really not able to participate or, you start doing intermittent fasting, you're not getting results and you just try to make it harder on yourself. So it's, you know, trying to put a square peg into a round hole. Sometimes it just doesn't work. And so I think of the menstrual cycle as a barometer for our bodies of letting us know if we're overtaxing our bodies, doing too much. Mm-hmm. And so I would imagine you probably see women that are pushing their bodies way too hard, whether it's emotionally, physically, philosophically, psychologically, (laughs) neurospiritually. Yes. In all, in all the ways we do that. Yes. 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 And I think COVID is really in so many ways has really made it harder for everyone to manage their stress. So curious to know some of the things that you're looking for when you're working with women that are letting you know that they're overdoing it, that intermittent fasting is a hormetic stressor and certainly a beneficial one, but perhaps they're doing things a little bit too way harder than their body can then absorb. Yeah. And I love this question. And you actually alluded a little bit to uh, one of my sort of yellow flags before, which is like the, you know, the high intensity interval training four, five, six times a week. It's like usually when a woman, so I have a lot of women that'll come to me as well. And they'll say, you know, I want to lose weight. And, you know, so when we think about stress, like when we're doing too much, the hormone that comes to mind there is cortisol or, you know, working in the sympathetic nervous system. So the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or HPA uh, for sure. So part one of those hormones is cortisol. So one of the telltale signs that a woman is pushing herself too hard is that she had like where she's gaining weight, it tends to be through the belly, she tends to be inflamed. So you know, in that luteal and that second phase of her or the second two weeks rather of her menstrual cycle, you know, for her rings, it's hard for her to get her rings on, she feels puffy, she feels swollen, maybe she feels moody, her sl- she has sleep disturbances, her breasts are angry, you know, like they're tender. So these are some things that tell me that her hormones are out of whack. But in particular, when we think about stress and stress, dominance or sympathetic dominance, if we want to talk about it in the context of the nervous system, we might find that her behaviors, things like wanting to snack frequently, or in the evening, she may want to feel, she may want to go to sleep, but her brain or like her mind is racing. 
So like the little acronym or the little, you know, jingle is like wired and tired, right? So she's tired, but she's so wired that she can't actually wind down. She may find that she may get fatigued after exercises that, you know, like going up a flight of stairs or after intercourse. Like, so all of these little clues when you're taking, you know, or the other big one, actually, I can't believe I forgot this one is needing coffee. So she needs coffee to wake up. She's bagged at 10 in the morning and at two o'clock, like that sort of two to four slump, I'll call it. She has this energetic slump between 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. So she needs to have some sort of pick-me-up. That tells me that she is driving, her cortisol levels are probably higher than what they should be. So in terms of a woman pushing herself too hard, those are sort of clinical pearls or things that I would look for to tell me that a woman is overdoing it. She's also going to be a type A personality. So she's going to like answer the question before the doctor you know, asks yeah. it. <laughs> she's probably going to go, she's going to be doing like her high intensity interval training three, four, five times a week because she needs that hit of dopamine. Mm -hmm. And like Dr. Sarah Gottfried beautifully talks about this in the context of like dopamine addiction. So like we have this dopamine insufficiency syndrome where we are jacking the dopamine. Like we do the soul cycle, we do the whatever the thing. And I always use soul cycle. I mean, I love this company. I'm not trying to poo-poo on it, but when you do it seven times a week, you know, you're on your Peloton and you're doing that like seven times a week, like maybe we want to dial it back and we want to put in some resistance training. We want to go for some walks with our family. We want to mix things up so that we are doing both a combination of high and low, you know, higher intensity interval training, maybe once or twice a week is kind of like the max. And for a woman who's like type A personality, it's like I'd cut it off at one because I know she's going to do two if I tell her one. (laughs) So these are some of the clues and some of the sort of clinical picture of a woman who's like driving herself into the ground. And I think that we want to also peel back another layer here. So why is she doing that? You know, so what is the emotional driver? And I often talk about this in terms of like how we've been cultured as women, right? So as women, we have been told to smile. Everything's always okay. Even though our life might be unfurling like a ball of yarn, you know, everything's always fine. And we've also been taught that our worth is intimately connected to our productivity. The more productive we are, the more worthy we are. So we continue to look for these external sources. Well, if I do five classes instead of four, well, if I you know, run around and sign my children up for, you know, six soccer classes a week instead of, you know, what everyone else is doing, which is three, somehow I'm going to be a better mother or I'm going to be more worthy the more things I put on my plate. And one of my missions really in terms of, you know, we were talking in the pre-chat about the book that's coming up that I'm writing and all this kind of stuff is really to help women unhitch. We want to unhitch this idea that our productivity and our worth are related to each other because they are not And once we can kind of start to attune with our own rhythms, one of those being our menstrual cycle, but also just listening to your body. Is your body telling you that you're tired? You know, what language does your body speak? You know, listening to your body and honoring her because your body is a temple. It is a goddess worthy of worshiping. So the closer that you can get to saying, wow, like, I'm really tired. Like, I think I'm going to take a day off today, even though I was supposed to do leg day, or even though I was supposed to do soul cycle, even though I'm just tired today, I'm going to give myself what I need. I think that's when we can really begin to heal from all aspects, all different dimensions of health. So like metabolic, you know, body composition, neurospiritual, emotional. Yeah. No, I agree a hundred percent. And and that's why it's the people trying to force an outcome yeah. that are the women that struggle the most. So 
That's a great segue. I want to hear about this book. I absolutely want to bring you back when it gets closer to coming out in 2021. Let's dive into that real quickly. It is my baby. I have three children of my own, but this is my fourth. So I have just, I'm close to birthing this book, baby. It is a lot of what we talked about today is going to be contained in this book. So we're going to talk about really empowering women to understand the ebbs and flows of their hormonal landscape. So understanding your menstrual cycle, what happens when like I, in the book, I say, there's like a title, like a sort of a subtitle in the book that I call it, you know, your period is your hormonal report card, right? Like it tells you every month how you're doing. So, you know, when things go awry, like if you've given yourself a C or a B, like, you know, how to understand like what a normal blood flow looks like, is there clotting? What's the color? When we have estrogen dominance, what might that profile look like? If you have androgen dominance, what that might look like. So we kind of go through all the different parameters, high testosterone, low testosterone, high estrogen, low estrogen, high cortisol, all that kind of stuff. And then we move into some of the metabolic therapies that we've discussed today. And then I go into a deep dive in terms of resistance training. And that's another area that I have always had a a big passion for. It's been a part of my life. It's been, you know, I used to compete in figure competition. Like, you know, resistance training is a really big piece, I think, that is missing in a lot of female health programs because we are so, and this still persists today. Like when I say high testosterone, lift heavy weights, women are like, oh no, I don't want to get bulky. You know, like I don't want to look like the Hulk. Like they're scared of bulking up and I don't understand why this still persists, but physiologically it's like completely impossible even if you, you would have to take exogenous tea, like you'd have to be doping in order for you to look like the Hulk. So really just kind of busting through some of these myths around weight training and lifting heavy, because for women, I mean, I personally, I want to live until I'm 150. And that means that I'm going to be able to when I think about what's required for like a person who's over a hundred, you know, if I'm traveling, I want to be able to take my luggage and, you know, when travel opens up again, like to be able to, you know, put my luggage in the overhead bin and be able to grab it off of the turnstile. I don't know what yeah. that thing is called, but when the luggage yeah. comes off of yeah. the thing, you know, to be able to lift up like 25, maybe 30 pounds, 50 pounds of piece of luggage. I want to be able to hold my great grandkids, run after them, take them to the park. Like these things all require flexibility, mobility, integrity of the spine and integrity of the skeleton, integrity of the muscles and strength in the muscles. So these are things that I think about when I think about what I want for my own life. And then when I think about what, you know, my experience as a woman, my experience as a female, like what are some of the things that are important for us, right? Lifting up our kids, being able to run after the kids at the park, travel, like I said, like these are all important things that we don't want to lose just because we have a higher number, you know, our age is higher, right? Yeah. Well, functional, I think functional fitness is really, really critical because I recall years ago, you know, when I was in a nurse practitioner in my twenties, you know, seeing some of my patients that were 60, 70, 80, and seeming like that seemed like a million miles away from where I was, but the ones who really did well were the people who still had hobbies remained physically active, Mm -hmm. uh, the people who were engaging socially individuals who continue to move their bodies. You know, I think that if we perceive that you hit a certain age and you stop moving, you're going to ensure you lose muscle mass. You're going to, I mean, all the things, you know, the sarcopenia, the osteopenia, I mean, all these beneficial things that we can lessen the likelihood of occurring. So tell the listeners how they can connect with you. Obviously, like I mentioned, we'll put all the information about your upcoming book and your website, but how can people, what's the easiest way to connect with you so they can get your amazing content. I was telling you before we jumped on that I've been following you for a while and really enjoyed your content. So thank you. 
So you can find me on Instagram. I'm pretty active on there. So you can find me at Dr. So Dr. Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E dot Estima, E-S-T-I-M-A. So I'm usually on there at least a couple of times a week. So I get lots of DMs, lots of stuff. They're very active on Instagram. The website is www.drstephanieestima.com. And the book we haven't quite finished. I can give you the name of the book. It's going to be called The Betty Body. And that is really named after my podcast fan. So my podcast, if I can plug it, is called Better with Dr. Stephanie. So we started calling the fans of Better our Bettys. So this is our Bettys. This is like an an ode to the Bettys. So Mm -hmm. it's called The Betty Body. And it's really going to be about how we can learn how to heal our metabolism, how to get the body composition that we want, and just like feel good in your skin. Like that's sort of the goal, right? Like you just want to feel good in your skin. You want to feel proud and you want your efforts to match your outcome. So that's kind of the book in a nutshell, but you can find me on Instagram website and then the better podcast that we have every week. Awesome. Well, I'm so excited that you joined me this afternoon and for everyone out there, I want to let you know how gracious you are because I got the timing mixed up and it was my error and you still graciously came on. So thank you again for being so flexible. Oh, it's my pleasure. Like I said, it's an honor to be talking to you and to be talking to your listeners. So thank you very much for that. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. 